Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Folks, welcome. Today, the topic is in the arena of employee health uh, with a focus on wellness, uh, care management, overutilization, and we are so fortunate to have Al Lewis on the podcast today for what I suspect will be a delightfully direct uh, dialogue. Uh, I, I'm just going to have to warn you, if you're driving, uh, please just pay attention to the road. Don't lose your focus. While the topic may sound tame, our guest today is anything but. Al is uh, funny and wicked smart and brutally honest. Um, and um, in our correspondence, he actually made mention that he's a somewhat controversial figure in this arena, known as the troublemaker in chief. Uh, but he's also been credited with being the father of disease management. In terms of a more formal introduction to Al Lewis, he is the founder of a company called Quizify, Q-U-I-Z-Z-I-F-Y. Uh, and we'll get into that a bit more during the conversation. Uh, the mission of Quizify is to help companies teach their employees uh, how to use healthcare services more appropriately. It is the owner, only employee health vendor that is authorized to display the Harvard Medical School Veritas Shield. Uh, Al is a nationally recognized expert in employee health. As an author, his critically acclaimed best-selling book on outcomes measurement, Why Nobody Believes the Numbers, chronicled and exposed the innumeracy of the health management field. In 2012, it was named Best Book of the Year in Forbes uh, in, this, uh, in this area. Another book, Cracking Health Costs, How to Cut Your Company's Health Costs and Provide Employees Better Care, was also a trade bestseller in 2013. In uh, 2014, his book, Surviving Workplace Wellness, also received great accolades, and excerpts of the book have appeared in the Harvard Business Review and elsewhere. Al, uh, as a consultant, is widely acclaimed for his expertise in population health and wellness outcomes and strategy. In 2013, he was named one of the unsung heroes changing healthcare forever. As a validator of uh, population health outcomes, he is the primary consultant to the Intel GE Validation Institute. Going back a bit, uh, Al graduated from Harvard College Phi Beta Kappa. After graduation, he taught economics at Harvard, and he then graduated from the Harvard Law School. And prior to his involvement in employee health and population health, he was a partner at Bain & Company. Al, uh, I hope I didn't embarrass you with that lengthy introduction, but uh, you deserve it. How are you doing today? Doing well, and thank you very much for having me on. Did Did you like the fact that I actually introduced you by saying you were wicked smart? Because I know you're from Boston. Uh, How do you feel about that? Uh, well, I, I would have preferred if you said wicked smart, but I'll take what I can get. <laughs> I knew I messed up on something. What can I tell you? Um, but it really, it's it's so wonderful to to have the opportunity to interview you. I've, I've heard you speak so many times over the past few years. I, I really think you were my major introduction into this field uh, many, many years ago. Um, and so it's just, it's just a privilege to, to have you on. Well, thank you. If, uh, if we were doing this visually, you'd see me blushing for that introduction. Well, you, you deserve it. And so let's get into it because I, I, I have so many questions. Um, I, I actually am going to ask you, usually ask guests at the end if they could come back and do a second interview, but I'm going to ask you that at the beginning because there's just too much to cover with you. So I want to just jump in and, and ask you the first question, which is, um, 
before we even get into Quizify, um, what is the problem you are trying to solve in healthcare? What, what do you see as the major problems that you've really devoted your career to and that now you're working on in this consulting work you're doing as well as the, uh, the organization and website you developed called Quizify? Well, uh, employers are spending ridiculous amount of money and employees are spending ridiculous amounts of money without knowing what they're spending it on. And somehow employers got the idea that if they can only get employees to eat more broccoli and buckle their seatbelts and take more steps, that that will reduce their health care spending. But in fact, the major problem in uh, among the insured people with health care is simply not understanding what they're spending the money on and having basically a blank check of their employer's money to go spend being overdiagnosed and overtreated. And the employers help them do this by insisting that they get checkups every year, get screened every year, and then the vendors tell them all these things that are wrong with them and they have to go to the doctor. So there's a, there's a, a fertile, there's, we call it hyperdiagnosis. There's a fertile amount of overuse that we want to be able to address with employee education. So, so overutilization of diagnostics and testing and treatment is one of the big bugaboos you're after. And, and, you know, why, why is that from your perspective? A problem. Why should people, whether it's employees or employers, be concerned with overutilization? Well, as an employer, this is healthcare is the only cost center in your entire organization where you're giving employees a blank check with no training and how to spend it. So the economics would say they're going to go out and basically buy whatever they want with no economic, at least once they get to their deductible, no economic pushback. I'm doing that. As an employee, um, a lot of these things can actually harm you. Uh, being overtreated for things, overdiagnosed and overtreated is not just a waste of money and time. You can actually get, uh, you know, if you're, the reason that you're not really supposed to get a PSA test for prostate is because if it shows up uh, positive, you end up getting biopsies that you probably didn't need as one example. Yeah. You had, uh, you know, when we spoke, you had a, uh, in fact, in your writings, uh, as I was preparing for this interview, there were a number of, of stories that I think people might relate to in terms of this issue of overutilization. And I'm just wondering if, if you might, if you can remember one or two, if you might share that. Uh, sure. Actually, there's one that I just posted that was from Cracking Health Costs that was, uh, AHIP, uh, put it up and they didn't, they didn't put it up satirically. They put it up legitimately, uh, that, um, there was a, a hospital in Kansas City and, and, uh, I won't mention names, although actually they put out a press release, so I can mention names. Uh, it was called Via Christie or something like that. And, uh, and they, a, a bank, Intrust Bank hired them to uh, do these thorough executive physicals on their uh, executives. And uh, there were 16 executives. And at the end, Via Christie was bragging about how many di new diagnoses they found. On 16 executives, they found 18 new diagnoses. And the person around the hospital said, this, is, this will be a great revenue center for us. And the person around the bank said, well, we haven't seen cost savings from this yet. And that would be a perfect example of employers wasting their money where employees are being, there's an expression, well, you're an internist, you've probably heard this joke, that the definition of a healthy patient is one who hasn't been examined thoroughly enough. Oh I've never heard that, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. 
Well, this is exactly what happened. They they put them through every test in the book, and they found all these diagnoses, and then they brag about mm-hmm. it. We call it hyperdiagnosis. The difference between hyperdiagnosis and overdiagnosis is overdiagnosis is an unfortunate side effect of of too much technology uh, in the uh, in the medical arena today, and people are embarrassed. You know, doctors are embarrassed about it. Um, you know, that 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 hyperdiagnosis is actually going out and doing exactly the opposite, trying to find as many diagnoses as you can, and then bragging about how many you found without understanding the way false positives work, without understanding that uh, the, the more you look for things, the more you're going to find, even if they don't exist. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in that story you shared with uh, the bank execs, I mean, are you, how do you, I guess my, my question is, how do you know that that wasn't, you know, appropriate diagnostic? I mean, was there any way to, to I mean, clearly it sounds like a extraordinary number of diagnoses to make uh, that were not found before, but what is your, you know, how, how do you, how, for an audience that's not as familiar with this literature as you or, or I might be, how would you explain that? Well, statistically speaking, um, what employers fail to realize is that is that in a population of a thousand, if they're covering a thousand belly buttons, only one will have a heart attack in a given year, and only one will have a, a diabetes event that they, you know, not not including diabetic complications that tend to be in the much older population anyway. Basically, only two things out of a thousand could possibly be present prevented by uh by screening and even they are very unlikely to be prevented so the idea of 16 people getting 18 new diagnoses is statistically speaking impossible yeah that, and i think and by the way that's that's i'm sorry that's 18 new diagnoses in addition to whatever diagnoses they already had so it's not like these were people who hadn't been to the doctor in forever right it's it, it just i mean it sounds at face value absurd so um i, I think uh, i think you're making a point and, and actually i can give you even another example and and i you know i won't mention names but um this is these can all be found on the website www.theysaidwhat.net uh, which chronicles the, uh, you know, the hilarious misdeeds of the wellness industry. But there's a vendor that, um, that is working with, was working with one of my accounts. I think we've, we've, I finally got them out of there where they were bragging about like last year, 24% of people, employees were found with new diagnoses that they didn't know they had. The year before that, 25%. The year before that, 23%. So basically over a four year period, Every employee is given a diagnosis. And the way they do that is they do all these tests that are recommended against, meaning told you're told not to do them by the United States Preventive Services Task Force, but they go ahead and they do these tests anyway. And the reason you're not supposed to do these tests is because the overwhelming majority of po- people who test positive are going to be false positives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know, this is a, a very... I, I mean, I've, I've been working in this area and, and reading this literature for years. And, uh, you know, part of my, my work has been in quality and quality improvement. So I, I will say this is, it gets a little complicated because most people, and I would say even most physicians, are, don't spend a lot of time thinking about pre-testing probabilities. And so if you've got something that, um, a disease that is very uh, l- low prevalence in, in a population and you do tests on it, you're going to pick up a lot of false negatives, which means that uh, there's nothing there. 
but you uh, not only concern uh, and, and worry the patient and their family, but then you start doing tests uh, and, and diagnostics and even sometimes treatments that are unnecessary. So it, it is really, really important to have a very, very clear understanding of the science and statistics of uh, preventive testing and testing in general. Uh, actually, if you, I could elaborate on that with an example, yeah. because one of the things I do is is trivia con- healthcare trivia contests at corporate events. Um, to teach, uh, you, uh, you know, to teach HR folks and benefits folks exactly what you just said. And one of the questions that I ask is, if you have a test which is 90% accurate and you're looking for some hidden condition that's one in a thousand, what percent of people who test positive will actually have the condition? And the answer is, if you're testing a thousand people and one has the condition, let's assume you're going to find that one. Okay, so now you found one, but the test is 90% accurate, which means it's also 10% inaccurate, which means that of the other 999 people, 10% of them, or roughly 100, are going to test positive even though they don't have it. So only one in 100 of the people who have tested positive actually have the condition. And yet, as you just said, all 100 of them are going to be told to go to the doctor and get some more tests and get treated, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. No, you know, it is clear, and I've had other guests on the show that have uh, talked about this issue of overutilization. It is something that is uh, one of the major issues right now in in healthcare, both in terms of the unnecessary costs that it imposes on individuals and families and employers, as well as, uh, quite honestly, the the entire system, payers and and the government, um, but also the, the harm that it can do. And, and, you know, I was actually a, a little bit surprised I hadn't come across this article until I, I saw it in your blog on your website, on the Quizify website. Uh, and I would recommend people uh, look this uh, article up. It was in Health Affairs in 2000, uh, October of 2017, so just a, a few months ago. And um, it, it, the article was uh, it was a, a study that was published. Uh, it was a survey that was repeated between 2014 and 17, so about three years. And they um, surveyed of physicians in terms of their awareness of the Choosing Wisely campaign, which is a campaign that was sponsored by the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation. includes It includes over 500 specific recommendations from dozens of different medical societies. So this is true evidence-based medicine, uh, tr- tremendous uh, national engagement across the board. Uh, and it, the whole idea was to really catalyze um, evidence-based conversations between doctors and patients. And what was uh, shocking to me, uh, and again, I thank you for for referring me to this article through your website, was shocking that um, that even after five or so years of this being out and being publicized in medical journals and, and elsewhere, it's on the web um, and being discussed as far as I knew everywhere, only 25% of American doctors are actually aware of the Choosing Wisely initiative or campaign. And of the 25%, uh, about only about 10% are actually following the guidelines because most of them feel it's too difficult. There are too many obstacles in their way in terms of really having these sorts of conversations with their patients. And so, so literally less than 5%. Uh, way less than five percent of physicians are actually following these guidelines, and one can imagine as a result, you're seeing the continuation again of a lot of unnecessary testing. And so, I, I think that's part of it. But but from a a wellness vendor perspective, an employer perspective, it, does the story get bigger than that? 
Uh, well, yes, because the choosing guideline, the choosing wisely guidelines are only a fraction. That's only what the doctors have agreed. Not even the doctors, the medical societies have agreed upon that should not be done in their own practice. So you can imagine the standard for that is very, very high because they're costing themselves revenues. Now, what we had recommended at Quizify was you can't rely on the doctors to reduce their own uh, revenues by doing this stuff, and you have to educate the employees instead to start asking the right questions. And the analogy we used was um, Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring about DDT maybe, I don't know, almost 60 years ago now. Uh, when she first learned of the hazards of DDT, she wrote to Monsanto and asked them to stop making it. Um, and, of course, they never wrote back um, because she made the mistake of thinking that the producer who's making the money on this stuff was the place that was the person to turn to. And then she figured out that the answer was exactly the opposite. It was the people who were adversely affected by it who would be the right audience. And that's why we don't, you know, I mean, we, we love the choosing wisely guidelines, but we don't think they're ever going to um, really take hold because those are the producers. You're asking them to cut their revenues. You're asking them to do do things that, you know, that cost much less money that might that that are not what they were trained to do. You know, the surgeons trained to do mm-hmm. surgery, for example. But if you go to the employers and the employees, you'll get a much more receptive audience when you start talking about the harms. Uh, of these things and the value of doing things that are vastly less invasive. And I just had an example happen to me the other day. One of the things in Quizify that we talk about is this breakthrough in uh, the treatment of cavities called uh, silver diamine fluoride. You uh, sprinkle it or uh, you, you, you put it, you just uh, wipe it, sprinkle it on the affected cavity and it immediately cures the cavity. The cavity is over. It's done. It's still there. And actually, it turns black. So you wouldn't do it with a front tooth. And you typically would do it with all kids' teeth because filling kids' cavity is very difficult. Um, but it solves the problem. Well, you know, I had a tiny cavity in the back of my mouth. And my dentist says, oh, you know, we're going to have to drill this. And this, by the way, is a dentist who I picked 20 years ago because I thought she was way ahead of the times. So she said, oh, we're going to have to drill this. And I said, why don't we just use silver diamine fluoride? And she said, quote, unquote, you know, that isn't a miracle. Okay, so when you're opening argument against the treatment is it's not a miracle, right. you're going to lose the debate. Uh, and, and this was something that I eventually convinced her to do. So she went in the other room and got some and put some on. I didn't need another appointment. Uh, I didn't need to pay another bill. And the whole thing was taken care of. And you can't see it. It's why in the back of my mouth. Uh, but that's the kind of thing you're up against. And that's just a microcosm. But this, like, silver diamond fluoride has been approved by the FDA for a couple years, used all over Europe. But I'm betting that most people haven't heard of it because when I do these live trivia contests for at conferences for HR people, benefits people, most mm-hmm. of them haven't mm-hmm. heard. I, I, well, I'm glad you shared that with me. I'm going to look into it. Um, uh, you know, let me, you know, you're talking about Quizify and I really want to get into um, the work you've been doing, quite honestly, for years in the arena of wellness and 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 with employers. And I guess you know your your thesis and one of the reasons you've developed Quizify, as I understand it, is that you're seeing that a lot of the recommendations that 
the wellness vendors and the whole wellness industry is bringing to employers is is really um, in some sense overutilization, overdoing it. Um, and there's not a lot of evidence uh, around the efficacy of wellness programs and in in in, in employer settings. And and that really is a is a to me at least sounds like a a major rift or, you know, a difference between what everyone is thinking, what's sort of accepted as, as sort of, um, you know, common sense at this point, but you're saying it's just not common sense. It's not even true. And that we're wasting money and uh, also uh, harming people at the same time. And you've talked about the health risk assessments. You've talked about weight loss programs. Um, The other programs that, uh, you know, vendors uh, and wellness vendors are, are touting and, 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 you know, most employers these days, have wellness programs of some sort. So I guess my question to you on a very, very basic level, and, and please get into this as much as you'd like, but on a basic level, how could you argue with wellness in the workplace? I mean, what's, what, what's your argument that it's, it's not effective and it's actually harmful? Well, uh, we could we could take up the whole rest of the time on this. My next presentation I'm doing on this topic, the title is Wellness, a fraud or just a waste of money? Um, it, it, it is indefensible. Well, first of all, the theory is, is great. You know, I mean, I used to believe the theory until I started looking at the data that if you make employees healthier, everybody's going to benefit. Uh, well, it turns out, uh, number one, and uh, it's not. Not the lack of eating broccoli that causes employees to, uh, you know, to incur costs. Uh, it's, it's social determinants of health. It's stress in the workplace. It's bad luck. It's genes. Uh, and most of the things that you can prevent in wellness aren't going to happen until people are over 65 anyway. So there's a whole sort of theoretical argument against it. Practically speaking, um, it's been proven. It's on my website. They said what Dot net. Just uh, search on the word proof that wellness has not avoided essentially a single heart attack or a single diabetes admission in in this entire century. And this is based on the uh, the government data from um, the AHRQ, and it's all sourced uh, on the on the website. Um, and the third thing is uh, that all the studies that are done are done on a participants versus non-participants basis. In fact, the, the thing that's turbocharged the wellness industry was this study in, in 2010 in health affairs by, her name was uh, Catherine Baker, uh, and she found this 3.27 to 1 ROI in wellness that's been widely cited and is complete fiction. Um, they didn't, the authors didn't disclose that, uh, that one of the co-authors was working for President Obama to try to get Obamacare passed. So there, there is, and they also didn't disclose that essentially every article in there was written by a wellness promoter. But most importantly, the actual methodology in these things, participants versus non-participants, has been proven twice doing completely different methodologies to be completely invalid. You can look on American Journal of Managed Care, participants versus non-participants. You can Google on it. You'll see that in the three cases where the participants versus non-participants methodology could be benchmarked, in all three cases, it turned out 100% of what looked like positive separation between participants and non-participants was fictitious. In one case, and this this won an award from the, the C. Everett Cooper Award, which is given to the uh, wellness vendor who is, does the best job of making up outcomes in any given year. According to the actual application in the Cooper Award, the participants outperformed the non-participants by 20% 
they, they went from being, they set them up so that the two had about the same amount of spending. Two years later, the participants had, had 20% less spending than the non-participants. So there's 20% separation. But according to the actual uh, application to this award, the program hadn't started yet. The program was delayed for two years. So it was, it had to have been the mindset of the participants versus the non-participants that caused the separation. So there are three examples like that, and I got them all categorized. And then just the other day, within the last month or two, the National Bureau of Economic Research did a controlled study where they controlled for the bias between participants and non-participants and found, once again, that the entire, essentially the entire difference between the two was due to self-selection and not to the program. What made that study particularly interesting is that the lead uh, researcher, a guy by the name of Damon Jones, um, reports to that very same Catherine Baker who said exactly the opposite uh, eight years ago. So you know it's legit because nobody is going to diss their boss. I mean, it's got to be humiliating for her to have your, your subordinate prove that one of your seminal uh, findings is completely invalid. Sure. Oh, oh and, and, and Zev, if I may add one more thing. Uh, this is not a debate anymore. This is settled. And the way you know it's settled is I've got a reward offer of $3 million for anybody who can show that wellness saves money. And number, and they don't actually have to show that wellness saves money. If they, if they apply for the reward, I have to show that wellness loses money. So I've got the burden of persuasion. Of the five judges on the panel, I only get to point one. They get to point one. Two are appointed objectively by figuring out who the most prominent health economic, health economists are using objective measures. And then those four judges uh, appoint the fit. So the whole thing is completely on the level. And these wellness vendors, they know that they're lying. They will not apply for this award. I've begged them to apply for this award. I've even begged them to sue me. I've actually put my address up. I put my attorney's address up, put my, even my summer address up in case they decide to sue me, you know, in July or something. I can't, I can't get them to budge. And, and just for, for those people who are interested in looking up, uh, these examples, uh, where, where would you point people to go? You mentioned the website. Yeah, I, I would, I would, if, if you want to learn about health literacy and how to do right by your employees and how to save money and how to make your employees happy, that's quizify.com. That's the corporate website. Has essentially nothing to do with uh, the, the wellness uh, expose website, which is they said what.net. And with they said what.net, you simply enter the name of your vendor in the search function and then you can tell what got said about them. Yeah, there are a couple of vendors, um, you know, Limeade and, and, uh, Health Advocate that, that we've looked at pretty hard, um, and, and seem to be very on the level and are not making, uh, claims, you know, that they can't support. But most other vendors, if you put their name in there, what will come up will, um, will shock you. I mean, this is not, this is not me making accusations. I'm simply, uh, in fact, I simply quote them and I take screenshots of them. There's a saying in wellness that in wellness, you don't have to uh, challenge the data to invalidate it. You merely have to read the data and it will invalidate itself. Wow. Now, again, I can imagine employee health 
um, uh, benefits managers, uh, HR leaders uh, saying, uh, okay, uh, maybe I believe you, let me look into this a bit more, but, um, but still, uh, you know, how can you, how can you diss things like weight loss programs? Um, what would you say to them? Uh, well, actually, crash dieting programs I'm about to put, by the time this podcast is out, I'll have a new crash dieting um, uh, program uh, on my, on they said what.net. Uh, they have these weight loss contests and they put this, these large amounts of money at stake. And what happens is people binge before the contest and then they crash diet. Which is extremely unhealthy, according. It's it's well, according to many people, it's unhealthy. But according to everybody, you will gain the weight back. Um, so you know, you're you're essentially. But the binging part, we know that they binge because the, what I'm going to put up is just the massive amount of weight that these teams lose in the first four weeks of the contest. You can't lose that much of a weight from a standing start. You can't lose 10% of your body weight in four mo- four weeks, unless you've uh you've binged and in fact there is a website that is cited and linked on my website that gives employees advice on how to cheat on corporate weight loss contests by by binging and and by uh, eating taking in a lot of salt before the way in initial way in and that kind of thing uh they do actually say on this website these these contests are a really bad idea but if you want to win it here's how to win it yeah no, i know i would agree with you about the uh the yo-yo dieting and the crash dieting clearly harmful, um, especially if, if people have underlying disease already. Um, so, so I mean, what you're saying, and and I, I want to ask you again, you know, if it doesn't help people, you're saying that this these these wellness programs don't don't prevent heart attacks or strokes or diabetes, um, and and from another perspective. You know, a lot of the times employers are also looking at costs and seeing them as, as you know, by preventing these bad things, you also lower the cost of care appropriately, uh, which everyone wants. Uh, you prevent emergency room visits, perhaps, or hospital admissions. Is, is any of that true? Uh, no, it's actually just the opposite. Uh, in fact, just the other day, Medicare came out and said that um, that they did a study and showed the costs went up. Not down, up, down, not even including the cost of the wellness. The, uh, the cost, the wellness caused costs to go up. The state of Connecticut did a study that showed that wellness caused costs to go up. Uh, that's, that, that person who reports to Catherine Baker that I told you about said that whatever the difference in cost between the two groups looked, if anything, like the cost of, of cause, uh, that wellness caused costs to go up. Um, so there is, there is zero, there's, there's, Less than zero gross benefit to to wellness programs, uh, period. And most importantly, these programs are making people less healthy often uh, through this overdiagnosis, hyperdiagnosis. Uh, I give out uh, annually. I give out what I call the deplorables award to the uh, to the wellness vendor that does the best job making employees unhealthier, using once again their own data. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's fun to mention names, but I think, uh, frankly, I like to get the hits on my website. So you just got to go to my website and, and, and click on deplorables award and, and see who, uh, see who comes up. But one of them was actually featured in stat news, which, uh, for the readers who, who don't know, I'm probably most of our listeners, probably most people on your podcast do is the healthcare daily news, um, was actually, uh, there's an expose that showed that according to their own data, the employees got worse 
And then the, the head of the company that, and by the way, they won an award for this. As I say, the, the Coop Award always goes to the company who does the best job lying about their outcomes. But if you look hard enough, it always turns out that in fact, somewhere in there, they've told the truth. Well, this guy had to admit that he flouted guidelines, that his health outcomes got worse, that he, he made up, uh, outcomes use or made up savings using regression to the mean. All this stuff is right in stat news. You know, so how, I mean, you must know this, I, I don't, but how much does, uh, do employers spend on wellness programs? Is there some sort of number per employee that you're familiar with? And so I, what I'm asking is how much can employers save if they didn't, uh, deploy the types of wellness programs you're talking about right now? Well, the, the a typical program costs about $150 a year per employee, uh, which is about 3%, a little less than 3% of spending. Uh, and then there's also another percentage point or two that gets spent on extra trips to the doctor and extra tests and that kind of thing. So you're looking at, let's just say 4% of spending. Uh, that can be eliminated by not doing these programs. What we typically recommend is not abandoning them altogether, but just mm-hmm. screening according to actual clinical guidelines put out by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, like any responsible physician would do, which essentially means, and it's going to vary by age, but essentially means uh, screen somebody once every three years or so. Um, so that whole 3%, 3 to 4% isn't going to go to zero, probably go to about 1%. But that's savings right off the bat. And that doesn't even take into account the, the productivity savings from not, you know, taking employees off the line to line them up to be screened, the reduction in stress, uh, all these things. So it, that's just the initial thing. And, and employees hate wellness. Um, they, oh, by the way, let me distinguish between two types of wellness. I should have done this a while back. There's wellness done to employees and wellness done for employees. Uh, what I'm talking about is wellness done to employees. Wellness done for employees, you know, giving them gym memberships and giving them better food and, and, um, you know, just, uh, giving them more benefits, you know, more maternity leave and that kind of stuff. That's all wonderful stuff. Uh, you know, uh, far be it for me to ever object to any of that. What we're talking about here is the type of wellness that employees are forced to do. And this is what they hate. And the way you know they hate them is, uh, is Willis Towers Watson, a large, um, you know, a benefits consultant, uh, surveyed employees all over the world. And in the United States, they found that wellness employees had a, a net promoter score, which is the, the most common, most widely used, uh, satisfaction metric. You're scored from negative 100 to 100 using a formula. Uh, their net promoter score was minus 52 for wellness. The, of the 20 largest B2C industries, uh, the lowest performer is uh, TV and Internet services, no surprise there, which is a two. So what that's saying is that, is that employees would vastly rather sit home waiting for the cable guy to show up than they would participate in a wellness program. Not even close, 54 points difference. Right. And the, those West Virginia teachers who just went on strike – uh, they they got a, they went on strike for pay, but also the, the, what actually triggered the strike was the state 
uh, made them go into a wellness program. <laughs> they, all, they, they, they went on strike over wellness, basically. And the state ultimately had to take the program away. Mm-hmm. And then there was a guy at Penn State um, about three years ago, who four years ago, who led a revolt against the wellness program. And he got elected president of the Penn State Senate. So it, it's very clear that employees hate this stuff and it's bad for mm-hmm. them. And, you know, I mean, aside from that, how did you like the theater, Mrs. Lincoln? Well, you know, before you mentioned, Al, the, this reduction in percentage. Now, percentage of what? I'm, and I'm sorry if I missed that. When you said it was a – you could lower your cost by 3 4 percent. You, you're – Right. Oh, of total health care spend. It. Okay. Uh, you're, if you take the cost of the wellness program, the cost of all the administration of the program, and the extra trips to the doctor – and you reduce that to just screening according to guidelines, it's, you're looking at about a three to four percent, uh, savings in total healthcare spending. Right. Uh, that's significant. And, and so how would an employer, uh, know, know this? I mean, they, that's what they use vendors for to help them figure out, you know, what, what the recommendations are and what the guidelines are. I mean, where would employers turn to? Well, I mean, you've got to you've got to go to the internet. I mean, the vendors aren't going to tell you. The vendors, uh, you know, make this stuff up. I mean, uh, if they screen according to guidelines, they're going to lose a ton of money. Mm-hmm. So most of them don't even tell you guidelines exist. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and like one of the, you know, a vendor stood up in a room and said, and said, oh, you know, we want to screen according to guidelines, but our employers won't let us. And I, I've yet to find an employer who, when you describe to them what guidelines are all about, say, you know, I'd rather spend three to four times as much money and get my employees really miffed at me and get them overdiagnosed than I would do the appropriate thing. It doesn't happen. And there is even a vendor who um, – I have to tell you who it is so you can go uh, find them. Uh, it's, it's HealthMind is the name of the vendor. The guy's name was Bryce Williams who wrote the article, and you can find an employee benefit advisor or employee benefit news, one or the other. And uh, he basically said, you know, forget about the guidelines. Uh, screen annually. But he didn't actually give any reasons. Uh, he just said that's the way to do it. And he didn't even – he actually misnamed. It's called the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, not the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. So, I, you know, I commented if you're going to, you know, if you're going to, uh, uh, you know, argue – with this organization whose entire raison d'etre is to, is to optimize screening guidelines, you need to have a better argument than just, oh, you shouldn't do it, and you need to spell their name right. Right. So a couple of things. Um, first of all, for, for listeners who are interested, you, there is actually an app um, that you can download that has these uh, U.S. Preventive Service Task Force guidelines. And so that's uh, number one. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, Al, I just want to say your, your 3% reduction, 3 or 4% reduction. Now, for, for any employer, clearly for larger employers, this is going to be a huge, I mean, we're talking a savings of, of multiple millions, potentially even tens of millions of dollars. But when you look at the spend of healthcare spend of employers across the country, we know that, that uh, I think it's about 50%, almost 50% of all um, healthcare bills are paid for by employers. And so we're talking about half of the 3.2 trillion dollars are being spent by employers. And if you're saying that 
that we could literally reduce the cost by, uh, you know, two, three, four percent. That those are significant savings to the healthcare system, and uh, not only reduce costs, but I think what we're talking about is improving care if the appropriate guidelines are being followed for employees. So, so now, what is you know, I looked at your website, Quizify. How does that, how would an employer use that or employees use that? And how does this help uh, the cause that you're, you're promoting here, which is uh, to, to really optimize care um, and minimize overutilization? Well, the, uh, there are two ways you can do it. One is you can use it as a health risk assessment as an employer. Uh, and you essentially, you give your employees this health risk assessment in, in lieu of others. Uh, because others, they ask you things like, how much do you drink? And everybody lies about that. And, uh, you know, how many servings of uh, fruits and vegetables do you have? And nobody really knows. I mean, what size is serving? That kind of thing. And then they ask you questions. And I, I, as, as I swear this is an actual question on a health risk assessment. Would you consider yourself to be a good person? Hmm. Okay. Newsflash, even Walter White thinks he's a good person. You know, by definition, if you're a bad person, you're going to lie and say you're a good person. So there's none of that nonsense. Nobody telling you to buckle your seatbelt. Uh, it's, it's, and, and there's no opportunity to lie because we don't ask personal questions. We, we ask questions like, uh, are, are you aware? This is a, this is a question right off the website. We show a, a, a particular granola bar and an ingredients list and we say, spot the hidden sugars and tell us how many hidden sugars there are in that. Well, that is a much more valuable skill to learn than it is to, to, to take an HRA and the HRA says, avoid hidden sugars. Well, yeah, that's easy for them to say, you know, the food companies spend an awful lot of time figuring out how to hide those sugars. It's not useful advice. It's like telling your kids, and I'm guilty. I used to tell my kids that just be good. You know, it's just not, right. not, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you implement that? Right. So wait, 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 Al, Al do you mean that doesn't work? Are you, is that what you're telling me? Shockingly? Yes. Right. <laughs> and yet, uh, and yet they all, you know, 99% of them turn into responsible adults despite us. Go figure. Yes, that's right. right. So, that's right. um, so we would teach you how using what we call Jeopardy meets health benefit education meets comedy central. We teach employees how to do things like spot hidden sugars or ask questions like uh, how much radiation is in this uh, CAT scan or uh, uh, recognize that there's certain, I mean, the most popular, the most popular type of pill uh, in the, in the country is proton pump inhibitors, heartburn pills. And the labels very clearly say to take them for two weeks, but you get relief. So you keep taking them. Well, you know, newsflash, there's a reason the label tells you to only take it for two weeks. And we educate people on what some of the side effects or adverse, long-term adverse uh, effects of these might be. <laughs> so you learn a ton of money, a, a ton of things. You can do this using the health risk assessment format, or you can use it just doing 10 questions a month, every month and letting employees play the game and, uh, you know, earn points, get on a leaderboard, that kind of thing. But one way or another, these are things that employees do not know that are very useful things uh, to know if you're going to be spending your employer's money on health care and if you yourself as an employee want the best outcome. You know what I love about the uh, site, too, and your approach here is this whole kind of quiz approach that you've taken, making it sort of a, you know, kind of a trivial pursuit game or a Jeopardy game or, you know, you've, you've made learning how to take care of yourself, uh, how, how to utilize medical care appropriately, how to take medications. You've made that fun and I just think that's critically important. What, what, what's your experience with that? I mean, do people, uh, does that increase the use of this by, by employees or? 
Oh, without question. Um, there, in fact, we just had one the other day who, um, you know, actually sent it back to us and said, because we were too straight. You know, they said, make this fun. This isn't as fun as your other quizzes. So yes, fun sells. And, uh, you go on the website and you, you know, you see things like, um, well, so we have a question, uh, you know, how, how do you pick a, a good surgeon? What questions did you ask, uh, to find the, the right surgeon and things like, well, you know, where did you go to medical school? It turns out to be not a particularly good question, but how many of these have you done? That kind of thing. And then the last question is, did you know that 15 minutes can save you 15% or more? That's funny. Um, <laughs> um, let me ask you, I, I, I'm debating with myself whether it, well, let me ask you this. Do you, do you, uh, this, the Quizify website, is it, is it direct to employees or do you, do you, you know, do you, uh, do employers, uh, purchase it from, you and then offer it to the employees? Employers purchase it from us and offer it to the employees. And uh, so they can do it either as a health risk assessment or as a separate standalone set of quizzes. We do have occasional quizzes that are up there specifically for employees. So most recently, and I have to say this is not one of our fun quizzes. This is a work quiz. But most recently, we've posted opioid mm -hmm. awareness uh, quizzes and we're, we we waived our copyright. So uh, we basically want to get that out in the general market as as far as we can because there's shocking shocking stuff that people do not know like the the percentage of addictions that start because somebody uh, a parent uh didn't throw out their remaining opioids um after they you know only used half of them or something like that their kids got a hold of them or that um this it becomes difficult to get it's not actually it's not an addiction yet but it becomes difficult to get off opioids after 3 days of taking them regularly, or uh, one sixth of people who who take ten days uh, as directed ultimately end up doing it for more than a year because they can't get off. So there's all sorts of things we can't help employees once they're addicted. That's the employee uh, assistance plan. But but by bringing this this awareness to employees, we can help them recognize the risks of 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 treating pain. Uh, with opioids, when in fact it turns out that there are other combinations of ways that you can treat pain that turn out to be equally or virtually equally effective. Well, I, I wish we had had your Quizify on 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 opioid use uh, a few years back because it would have prevented one of one of the most serious epidemics of our time. So it's a, obviously a really serious topic, but I'm glad you've got something out there now, and I'm glad you mentioned it because I wasn't even aware of that um, after doing some of this research. Let, let me. Did you want to say something? I, I, oh well, I, I, uh, it's, I it's right on the website, and you just. Um, what do you have to do? I think you just go to the blog and just look for the opioids posting and it will have a link uh, to the quiz. And I'd encourage everybody to let their employees use it. And, and, and the funny thing is, Seth, that, uh, and you can find this on, I think it's Insurance Thought Leadership, is the first time uh, I did an analysis with somebody else of, uh, of a company um, and this, 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 the, the people that I was doing it with were, were, had, had this new product that would, that would test claims. And we kept getting this ridiculous spend for opioids. Mm. And this was before anybody knew, you know, and the, I mean, you can find this. It's on insurance thought leadership. Um, and, and we thought, you know, this can't be right. There must be a mistake in here. Or maybe somebody's getting these and dealing them or something like that. Well, it turned out 
unbeknownst to us, we had stumbled on to this employer opioid epidemic. Uh, let me let me switch gears if it's okay with you. Um, and I know we just have a few minutes left, but um, since I have you and I, I really want to, there are a couple of burning questions for me. Um, I spent a lot of time and have over the past few years in the whole realm of care management. And I know this is an area, disease management, care management that you've been uh, spent years on are quite expert in. And, you know, the challenge is we are constantly trying to improve our care management approach. And this is both in the employee health space as well as the population health space. And, and you know, it's, it is probably one of the mainstays of population health uh, is the use of uh, nurses and uh, pharmacists and uh, social workers and behavioral health people uh, and health coaches in, 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 in care management, in focusing on people who are, have chronic disease, chronic disease, who have uh, complex chronic uh, disease burdens. And so one of the challenges, again, I, I find is how do you demonstrate the efficacy? And, and in part, it's important to do so that you can make improvements in your care management approach, but also to know that you're actually doing something and what it is that you're doing in terms of improving health outcomes and, and lowering the cost of care. So is there, I, I didn't get a chance to really look at this in preparing for this interview, but what's your take on that? How, how do we prove uh, that care management is working? Well, uh, you're, you're doing disease management on, uh, and typically also wellness on a set of conditions. Um, you know, heart, heart, uh, you know, four tens to four fourteens would be the ICD nine. So ischemic heart disease, uh, CHF, COPD, asthma and diabetes. And all of those conditions have, uh, now ICD tens, formerly ICD nines that, uh, the trigger when you go to the hospital, or the ER with these things. You track those over time, those events over time. And this, by the way, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to sound like I'm pitching my book, but honestly, the royalty rate is low enough that it's just isn't hardly worth any my while to do it. But if you read why nobody believes the numbers, this is all covered in chapter two. Um, it, it describes how you basically just count events within your population and you track them over time to see if in fact the event rate inflects after you put care management program in place. And then you compare that both to benchmarks, which we have, but also to your other event rates to make sure that your population didn't change in some way. Uh, and what you'd like to see is you'd like to see an inflection downward in these event rates as compared to your other uh, reasons for hospitalization. Now, what, what, uh, what I did find um, is, uh, and I, I, this is public data, but I, you know, they're a client of mine and I don't want to embarrass them, but someone could actually look this up, is that I had a large, uh, state system that, uh, that had a, you know, had, had the, basically the same event rates that everybody else had. And they decided to go hard after diabetes. So they hired the largest diabetes disease management company to do it. They waived all the copays. They spent millions of dollars. And the event rate didn't budge for the three years they were doing this. Then they decided, per this analysis, this was a complete waste of time and money. So they pulled that all back, and then the event rate didn't budge again. So essentially, it had no impact. Whether or not you were spending millions of dollars trying to avoid diabetes events, using care management, waived copays, all sorts of stuff, or whether you weren't, it had zero effect on the diabetes event rate. So... So what, what do you, what do you recommend? I mean, how do we, yeah, go ahead. 
Oh, the the post acute case management when when care management really consists of you know trying to prevent these things, but also managing once they happen. Post acute case management can be very valuable Mm -hmm. um, because people don't know where to turn. I mean, and if you have somebody there can help them figure out where to turn, they will be very grateful. And you may very well prevent an event. I mean, these are these are high probability people for going back into the hospital, and if you can prevent that you're making somebody very happy and saving quite a bit of money. On the other hand, going out in the general population and, you know, using wellness and trying to prevent an event or even going after people who already have diagnoses and trying to proactively prevent more events with disease management simply doesn't work. Whereas the, the, the care management and also things like care coordination, like quantum health type programs, those also work. Um, but not Going out into the population and just saying, okay, let's, let's find some people and manage them. So if you, I mean, we have people who are sick, but I guess what, what concerns me about that is that, you know, why wait until someone declares, you know, has the hospitalization or has the second hospitalization or, uh, ends up in the emergency room? Isn't, is there not a way to, to really kind of look at the sickest of the sick you have in your population, whether it's, you know, the top, two, three, four percent of your Medicare population or the top one or two percent in your general population and say, look, we know these people are really complicated, both from a, 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 a psychosocial, perhaps, a, you know, demographic perspective, uh, as well as a, a clinical perspective. And we're going to identify them in some ways. Is it the fact that we're just not good at identifying them? Uh, that's the issue or? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if, if that's why the post hospital thing works, is they're, they're kind of self identified for you. But to, to give you an example, uh, you know, of why this, these sort of these risk things don't work where you're trying to find the riskiest patients is take, uh, twins. I used to say two twins, but you know, I don't say that anymore. Uh, and, uh, and they, they both have heart disease in their family. Uh, you, you know, both of their parents died at early age. So, so they're at high risk. Uh, one of them knows they're at high risk. They're getting tested. They're taking the drugs, yada, yada, yada. The other one could care less. Uh, now clearly the one who could care less is by far and away the higher risk one for have her infarcting at some point. But every single risk model out there would say that person is low risk. And the one who's who's monitoring their care very carefully is the high risk one. Okay, so I I, I totally get that. So so if let me ask you this because I've been following uh, the predictive analytics field and you know I think there's a lot of uh, challenge with that too. There's a lot of hype and and a lot of well let's let's call it a lot of hype right now. But but if the promise of that and I and I've had the opportunity to speak with some you know I think really really honest people who uh, don't overdo the promise and and if if the promise is that look we can use machine learning uh, to help figure out just like the money ball thing to to look at correlations that just are not uh, available to the you know human mind and we can we can say this person is going to be someone that's going to be uh, you know in the hospital in the ED is going to have a high cost uh, situation and you know, we can tell you that ahead of time. And would that be an opportunity to jump uh, on that person with care management and, and help? I, you know, I, I hope it is. I mean, I, I think it's way too early to tell. Now, if care management work, remember, you're talking to the guy who, as you mentioned early, uh, if you Google on the phrase invented disease management, a bunch of your hits will be for me. So if any of this stuff ever worked, you know, I'd be retired on an island in the Bahamas somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I wish right. it worked. I was hoping it worked. And maybe this next round will work, but I can tell you the last round did it. 
Right. I got it. I appreciate that. So what do you, uh, uh, we're going to close out in the next uh, few minutes. I've got a couple more questions and thank you for, for, for answering all these questions. I've got so many more. What do you see in the next, um, you know, three years, four years, five years as sort of where's healthcare going in, in this space of wellness and disease management, and employee health? Do you see any major trends, any predictions about what you think is going to happen or what you hope is going to happen? Well, uh, yes, there's one big thing that's going to happen, which is that there's a, a new uh, a, a, a court case that was uh, uh, decided at the end of, of 2017 that's going to pretty much make it uh, illegal is too strong a word because nobody's going to go into jail, but it's going to make it um, disallow it's going to take away the safe harbor for doing wellness programs and not being sued by your employees. So you're no longer, as of January 1, you're no longer to be able to force employees to do wellness or lose uh, large sums of money. And when that happens, the, essentially the whole industry is going to, as we know, it is going to go away uh, and be replaced by uh, hopefully programs like Quizify that, that are not affected by this decision. In fact, when we started Quizify, it was partly because we knew something like this was going to happen at some point. We wanted to be, we wanted to be prepared for it. We wanted to be right there when it happened. Or you can do exercise programs. You just can't do clinical programs anymore. You can't do medical exam, forced medical exams, forced, uh, health risk assessments that ask, you know, questions like, do you have diabetes and, you know, uh, that kind of thing. That's going to all be off the table. So the safest prediction is that, is that wellness as we know it is, and, and no employees or very few employees are going to do this stuff, uh, if, if there's not money at stake. And that's what the decision is all about, that you're not allowed to put large sums of money at stake for this stuff anymore. So the, the industry as we know it is going to change dramatically in about 10 months. Wow. Now, if you had your way and an employer came to you, what kind of if you could quickly just give us a summary, what a uh, high level, what what kind of employee health or wellness program would you put in place? What would it, what would it look like? What would be the basic parameters? Well, I mean, clearly you can't have a culture of health without a culture of health literacy. So Quizify is, is front and center there. But I would also explain to them, and I do actually also explain to people, the difference between wellness done to employees and wellness done for employees. And I tell them to get rid of all this or cut your screenings and things way back to just what's recommended by clinical guidelines and then use what remains to make the work the workplace a a healthier and more appealing place to work and maybe that means more emphasis on on exercise maybe it means uh, you know improving what's offered in the cafeteria uh you know maybe it means giving people like I'm a huge believer in the dental benefit you know mm-hmm. uh, i mean the dental benefit they they give you they give you two checkups that are generally 100% covered, and that's it. Well, that's frankly not such a good idea because many people don't need two checkups, but some people need more than two cleanings a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're the ones, the people who really need three or four, they're the ones who are going to be uh, crashing on you at some point, either dentally or medically. Uh, so you'd like to be able to to cover the first benefit, the first test fully and then maybe 80% for up to three more uh, and also make your dental benefit richer in any event because 
these things are going to come back and, and, and no pun intended, they're going to come back and bite you <laughs> at some point. You know, you get toothaches. That's opioids. Uh, you, you don't understand that, that if your crown is loose, there's decay under the crown. If you have a root canal, you don't feel it. You can get an abscess. There's all sorts of stuff that can go wrong and people already don't like going to the dentist. So for goodness sake, give them a, you know, don't, don't make it a financial burden as well as a, an emotional burden. Well, you know, I just want to say something. Thank you for, for really emphasizing the dental part. Very, very few people really talk about that. And, and I, I think there's enough to support the importance of it for so many reasons. Um, what about, um, we haven't talked about behavioral health in terms of, uh, uh, you know, being a, a part of an employee health program or stress or things like that. What, what's your take on that, if you have one? Uh, well, I, I tend to stay away from behavioral health and Quizify asks very few questions about it because, uh, well, number one, people are like, like health risk assessments are great at saying, are you depressed? Well, number one, if you are you're not going to tell your employer. And number two, you may not know yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so it's very, very difficult to reduce mental health to a set of educational uh, trivia questions. And it also, the employees will, uh, you know, recoil. I mean, there's certain things that we know from Quizify that if you start asking about, you lose your audience. So on the opioids example, we don't ask questions about opioids until many months into Quizify. We never ask behavioral health and, we, or we ask very, very little behavioral health. And also many of our questions are you should go, you should see somebody for this. You should go to the doctor for this because so many of our questions are about you shouldn't go to the doctor for something that we, if we did that all the time and we know this because we used to do this, employees on their surveys say this is just a tool to get us to use less healthcare. So for instance, I, we just added a question the other day or we have more than one question on the swollen ankles. You know, they don't hurt. Um, you know, so your tendency is, ah, I'm not going to bother my doctor with, well, you know, newsflash. I mean, you're an internist. I mean, you see swollen ankles, you know, there's something going on mm-hmm. there, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, obviously heart failure is a, is a concern. Um, so let me ask you a question, a couple of questions to just to close out here. And I, I really do want to have you back again and, and, uh, and kind of dive deeper into some of this. What, um, it, well, let me ask you this question because I, I really, I almost wanted to open up with this. Um, why are you doing this? What, I mean, you, you, you have a, you know, Harvard undergrad, you have Harvard Law School, you worked at Bain early on in your career, you, you were a partner there. You could have done a lot of things with your career. Why, uh, how and why did you get into population health and employee health? Why, is, I mean, clearly you're passionate about it and, and, and brilliant in it. And, and um, you know, I and many others have learned so much and you've done so much in this regard. But why? What, what about this is so important to you? Okay, well, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. And, and it's nice of you to talk about the resume there. But I will tell you that every single job that I've ever had working for somebody else, I've either been fired or laid off. Or I would have been fired or laid off if I'd stuck around six more months, or I should have been fired or laid off and nobody figured it out. <laughs> so uh, when I got into this field in 1995, it's because I'd just been uh, laid off. Uh, I had been running a, a, it was actually a NASDAQ a company called Peer Review Analysis. I mean, as NASDAQ companies go, it was a fairly pathetic one. Uh, I mean, how pathetic was it? Well, you know, when I would see a letter from NASDAQ on my desk, I was pretty sure they were, you know, writing to tell me we were being delisted. Okay, so, but it was a NASDAQ company. I was at one point the youngest person ever to do that. In any case, we merged with another company. Uh, so I lost my position, and it, even though the merger was my idea, because I thought it would add to shareholder value, which it did. I mean, the stock went way up for um, 
but uh, I need to do something else. And uh, I stumbled into this disease management when it was so new that I got credit for, for founding it, even though all I did was make a lot of noise. I always say I'm only, I'm only good at three things, which are analyzing wellness outcomes, um, health, employee health literacy, and self-promotion. Okay, so the last of those three proved very helpful. So I got, you know, hard into this stuff and did very well with it for a while, for quite some time, until I got challenged by an actuary who said that all these savings figures that I was coming up with uh, were wrong. Huh. Now he didn't say he didn't say I was overstating the savings. He actually said I was understating the savings, and the disease management saved much more. Well, I knew this guy, actuary or not, I knew he was wrong. So I just sat down with a little spreadsheet. I'd never done this before, and just came up with some hypotheticals. With uh, and you can see them in my book, why nobody believes the numbers, the actual spreadsheet, you know, reproduction. And it showed that in fact, measuring the way he wanted to measure. You'd, you'd wackily overstate the savings, but also measuring the way I measured, you overstated the savings. So, and I, you know, I, I'm not going to make my living lying to people, even though apparently a lot of people in the industry have no problem with that. So I, I mentioned that in a conference and a guy by the name of Vince Caritas uh, writes in a blog post, you can still find it, uh, founding father of disease management astonishingly declares, quote unquote, my kid is ugly. Uh, well, that happened and Healthway stock tanked, you know, within the week and the whole industry, I mean, it would have collapsed anyway, but I think it probably collapsed a little faster because of me, just the way it grew a little faster uh, because of me. So, um, so you know, I basically uh, took myself out of out of making a living here. I, fortunately, I, I, um, there were a couple of companies that uh, that I or a company in particular called uh, Matrix Medical that I uh, co-founded and was on the board of, um, uh, you know, years ago that did very well. So, I, you know, it wasn't like I was going to be out on the living under a bridge eating squirrel or anything. But I still needed a new day job. So after disease management collapsed, I thought, well, you know, I should do wellness because everybody says wellness saves money. It's not like disease management. But the, I looked at it and it became quite apparent that, you know, that, that none of the savings made any sense. So that's when I wrote Why Nobody Believes in Numbers, which unlike surviving workplace wellness and unlike my blog, was a very respect, respectable respectful book. It didn't mention anybody by name, uh, but it just said, here are all the things, the ways that we're mismeasuring. Now, in my naivete, I thought, oh, they'll be, gr they'll be so glad to hear this. They can measure right, you know, and they'll, 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 but they did exactly the opposite. They were not at all glad to hear it. And they blacklisted me mm. for most conferences. And that's when I went rogue and started naming names and doing that kind of thing. Uh, you know, calling people out, uh, and I, you know, nobody sued me as much as I've tried. Um, I can't get myself sued. But then the way I got into Quizify was I, I and, and maybe we can do this next time. I'll tell the whole story, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I myself was dramatically overdiagnosed and almost overtreated. And, uh, at the same time, my daughter was. And, um, and I'm thinking, you know, uh, people, people just don't get how easy it is to be dramatically overtreated, overdiagnosed and overtreated. And I thought if I could figure out a way to educate employees from doing that, you know, I could do very well since we know wellness doesn't work. We know employers have the budget to spend. And then the, the epiphany happened when, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a trivia buff. I was actually on Jeopardy once. Hmm. So, you know, I thought if I could, could turn all this information into a trivia contest, then it, it would be very exciting and interesting for people, just like you said, and they would learn a lot. And that's how Quizify got started. Wow, that's great. Wow, what a great story. 
Uh, and I'll tell you that I'll give you the. It's a very funny story. I'll tell you the whole story next time we talk. I, I definitely want to do that. Um, we're going to have to schedule schedule that right away. What um, I asked this sort of closing question. Um, and I'm going to ask two more, but let me ask this one first. What was the best piece of advice you were ever given? Oh, that's a great question, and that would be the uh, the chairman of peer review analysis, which is that NASDAQ company I mentioned. I'll mention him by name. He was one of my he, one of my mentors, Barry Manuel was his name. And I had never run, a, let alone a NASDAQ company. I'd never run a, uh, actually I had run a company and went bankrupt, but but I'd I, I never run a, a company with this kind of revenues before. And he said, Al, the secret to being a CEO is anybody can say no to things and have the people leave upset. Anybody can say yes to things and have people leave happy. The trick is, to say no to things and have the person leave your office with a smile on their face. Wow. That's a tall order. And yet, you know, if I, I, I was able to, I mean, maybe they weren't when they, after they left the office, but I, you know, I, I was pretty darn good at um, sort of uh, making sure that only appropriate things got, uh, got done. That's kind of, it, it sounds that way. Um, is there any final takeaway a call to action uh, that you have either for people who are uh, uh, employers themselves who might be listening or just for uh, physicians or other leaders in healthcare and, or, or just general public, any, any, any takeaways? Uh, yeah. If you want to figure out if you're uh, first and most importantly, please just go to Quizify and play the sample questions on the site. And I guarantee you'll learn something and you're and then you'll think my employees might learn something, too. But uh, the other piece of advice is if you want to figure out if your vendor is honest or not, besides going to they said what dot net, just ask them. Uh, is there anybody in this industry who's uh, who's who's critical of it, who who we should learn about? And if they say, no, 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 you know, not, not really, nobody that we know about, then you know they're making that up and mm. they're not honest. Got it. Um, I, I believe that just about everyone in this industry knows you. I'd be, I'd be surprised if they didn't. Um, so, Al, I know we've gone way over and I knew that was going to happen. And uh, so uh, I, I want to just thank you so much for being part of Creating New Healthcare today and, and bring us your really uh, your fresh perspectives and your ideas and and I, I think wonderful solutions that you've created, including Quizify. Um, you know, again, I, I think it's. You know, my my focus here is really to, you know, catalyze positive change in our effort to create healthcare. And I think, you know, given the fact that overutilization is such a big uh, problem, such a huge problem in healthcare today, and, and the stats are very, very clear uh, that nearly a third of the healthcare dollars spent in this country are unnecessarily spent. So, um, you know, we're talking about big numbers. And as you and I were talking about today, the unnecessary uh, and avoidable harm that it causes, we know in this country, again, and these are, these are serious numbers. We know that somewhere between 200 to 400,000 people a year die in healthcare avoidable deaths. And so, uh, and overutilization contributes to, uh, to part of that as well. So I think this is a pretty serious topic. And I think that, you know, stopping 
stopping to do things that we don't have to do in healthcare um, would not only save lives and save money, but it would allow us to provide care to people who actually really need it. So I think what you're doing is critically important in the realm of population health and, and care management, disease management, and employee health. So just want to thank you. And and and, all, and as always, I want to thank our listeners, who uh, some of whom are out there doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are also supporting uh, the people who are taking care of patients. I hope uh, I hope you've gotten as much out of this as I have. Um, Al, again, thank you so, so much. Well, thanks once again for having me on. I look forward to doing it again. Great. Take care, Al.